Hi, this is Paul, and you're listening to Archonnect Sessions, episode 121. This week, Ken, Donna, and I are joined by architect and writer Esther Sperber to discuss the very real and serious issue of mental health in architecture. Esther owns Studio ST Architects, a small practice in New York City. She also frequently writes about mental health, with a specific focus on psychoanalysis and its relationship to architecture. Creative fields, especially those with long hours and high stress levels, are often rife with mental health issues. Anxiety, depression, sleeplessness, chemical abuse. These are just a few of the indicators common in architecture. If you're not suffering from any of these, you're likely working around people that are. On today's show, we barely scratch the surface of this extremely complex subject. Our conversation ranges from learning to listen and empathize to simple daily strategies for coping with mental health issues of your own and those around you to addressing more serious problems, including chemical imbalances and professional treatment. So Esther, thanks so much for joining us this week. I'm glad to be here. It's, uh, it's great to, to be part of this conversation. I'd like to start with learning a little bit about your architecture practice. Sure. So I have a small practice in New York. There are three of us right now, and we do kind of the full range of a mom and pop shop in the big city. So we do a lot of apartment renovations, but also spend at least about a third of our time working on institutional projects for community centers, synagogues, schools. We've done some art galleries. And one of the things I really value about having a smaller practice is being able to have a real intimate and personal connection with each and every one of our clients. And of course, the people on our team, both the people in the studio and contractors, engineers, et cetera. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, how do those relationships become nurtured? Like, what is a close relationship with a client in your perspective? I think clients come to us always with some kind of problem, with some kind of lack, whether it's uh, the 14th Street Y Community Center where the building was kind of decrepit and the programming was not going that well. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to both renovate the building, but also really transform the institution as kind of a brand and also just how people related to them as a community center. And also, obviously, people who come with a personal project, if it's um, renovating their home or creating an art gallery, there's something that's missing in their life that they're hoping to fix. And finding what that is that they're missing, I find it to be like a very personal journey, both for us and for our clients. And people don't always know upfront what it is that they feel is wrong with their physical space or what is wrong with their ways of living that can be helped by improving their physical space. So in the process of working with people, I find that we get to know them very intimately and get to know what it is that they're dreaming of, what it means for them to have a home or what it means for them to foster a sense of community or what it is to have a sacred space for prayer. And those become very meaningful conversations and something that we develop together with them. And, you know, our clients come to us for a little while. You know, they're not one-time meetings. They typically, you know, we're engaged with the project for a minimum of a year and sometimes many years, and sometimes we have return clients. So these become really interesting journeys that we discover together with them. Esther, did you ever uh, work previous to starting your own practice in like a larger corporate type firm and decide, oh, I don't want to practice this way? Or did you just fall into a kind of practice that suits your, your personality? I worked at two firms before starting my own practice. I'm originally from Israel. So I first worked for a very wonderful architect, David Resnick in Jerusalem. It was a, a kind of 
famous but small firm that felt very much like a, a little family business. We all ate lunch together and had a rotation of chopping the salad. And then after I studied at Columbia, I went to work in a firm that actually had a kind of similar feel, which was Pay Partnership Architects, I.M. Pay's sons and Mr. Pay, which was also very much a great firm with great architecture, but not a big firm. We were probably about 20-something people and also had very much this feeling of being a tight-knit family type of office. I loved working in both those places, but my own personal There was more hierarchy, even in those smaller firms. And so as a junior architect, I had very little contact with the clients or with the construction. Most of it was not local to New York. So I was really happy when I started my own practice to really be able to be involved in all aspects of the work. And it sounds like both of those or all of those experiences have been with, not with, for example, a hospital corporation that comes to you and needs the same clinic reproduced 20 times, but individual, very customized, very client and project specific issues that you're addressing at each project. Yeah. And that is interesting because there are definitely types of architecture where you need to have a very specific expertise like hospital design. And then there are those of us who somehow have the audacity to to think that we could kind of tackle most problems if we just kind of think about them. (laughs) And to some extent, that's true. And sometimes we definitely need to kind of be a little more humble or team up with people who has, you know, unique expertise or or specific expertise. But yeah, Pay Partnership and David Resnick were the kind of firms that would take on any type of project and wouldn't shy away from a particular typology. So Esther, you do a lot of writing in addition to your design practice. And a lot of the writing that you do is about psychoanalysis and architecture. And I'm I'm really curious to learn about what drew you to psychoanalysis. Is that something that you studied in college? Is that an interest that you've just pursued? Yeah. So I have been very curious and maybe a little obsessive about thinking about architecture and psychoanalysis in relation to each other. So initially, I thought of these two topics as kind of just two very different interests of mine. I love architecture, and I was very curious about how we perceive ourselves, how we relate to others. And I found in psychoanalysis a really interesting way of thinking about these questions. We're really looking at the kind of zooming in onto these very almost missed interactions that we have with other people or within our own thought process and trying to figure out what it is that makes us be the way we are and, you know, why we sometimes are so surprised by our own reactions, why we sometimes keep repeating our same mistakes, but also why we love certain things and are excited by them. But as I kind of read more about psychoanalysis, it started to, you know, resonate with many of my ways of seeing architecture. I think as architects, we hope to be very curious people and try to notice all these different things that maybe a lot of other people experience but can't articulate or don't even really pay much attention to. And we try to look at things and see how we can perhaps repeat them, but repeat them better. There's this lovely lecture by Mark Cousins where he talks about why we study the history of architecture and, you know, doctors don't need to study the necessarily the history of medicine. They don't need to know how like doctors tortured their patients in, in the Middle Ages. So why are we so obsessed with our history? And he talks about the fact that we are basically dealing with the same questions. How do we create public space? How do we create intimacy? How do we make a window? 
What's the process of entering a building? So these are questions that are really on the intersection between the built environment, the kind of structures that we create, and our internal life and social life, which is really the realm of psychology and psychoanalysis. And so I find these two disciplines, which seem kind of far from each other, to actually have a lot in common in the questions that they ask. And I think it's interesting to use answers, you know, from these different fields and kind of juxtapose them with each other and try to see what comes out of that. Can you, for those of us listening that may not know exactly what psychoanalysis is in relationship to, you know, other terms like psychiatry or psychology or therapy, what is psychoanalysis? Oh, wow. That's a big question. Let's say in like the very shortest answer I could give is, you know, psychoanalysis is, you know, founded on Freud's kind of discovery that we have motivations that are not completely conscious, that our childhood experiences that are affect the way we act and that our dreams and fantasies are sometimes kind of strange and surprising to us, but affect the way we act in the world. So, you know, we might say something that is exactly the thing we were thinking we should not say. And that our culture also has kind of a very big impact on the way we're structured. So both you know, are growing up within a nucleus family with parents and siblings and how that affects the way we might be competitive or compassionate or submissive and how these things creep up in the way we act in our regular life. So just to give like a very mundane example, how we listen to criticism. So I think, you know, we're all kind of, we're on Archonnect. So I think we're, we're thinking also about the studies of architecture and the experience of younger people in firms and why is it so hard? On the one hand, why is it so hard to give constructive criticism to someone? Why are more successful people seem to tend to sometimes be way more aggressive or dismissive than they need to be? Why aren't we all kind of better people? And then on the other hand, why are we, when we hear criticism or when somebody, and maybe even a kind criticism, criticism that's trying to help us, we're so often thrown back into our kind of most childish state of mind where we feel like nobody likes us and we're not good at anything and we're so vulnerable. And in both of those instances, there are kind of patterns that structure the way we behave that are not completely within our control, that we suddenly feel like a child, even though we know that we are grown-ups. So we tend to be less generous with people who are students or are employees or just people we're mentoring, even though we know that there's really no reason for us to assert our superiority in those situations. So a lot of those kind of mindsets that kind of complicate the way we act despite our best efforts are the things that psychoanalysis is really interested in and the part of psychoanalysis that I find really compelling. So why are so many successful architects such dicks? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to ask, do you know of many architects or do you think many architects do get psychoanalysis or do you think the flip side to that, that many more of them need to? <laughs> but I think Paul's question summed up my question much more straightforwardly. Why are so many architects such dicks? You know, I think you could be in a lot of therapy and still be very aggressive. I would hope that you could learn to recognize your bad behaviors and try to 
you know, be a better person. But I think being introspective can lead to being a better person, but you have to want to be a better person. And I think we do have a kind of long tradition of this. I mean, it's it's almost a cliche to say again, but the heroic male genius who must be aggressive in order to kind of overcome and trample over his client's wishes and the contractor's wishes and, you know, the livelihood of their employees, etc. And I think that's a really bad model and one that is, you know, there's a lot of science showing that that's not necessarily the best way to foster creativity and have great results. So both on a, on a moral level, I think that's a bad model. And I think even on a very utilitarian kind of analysis, it might not be the best way to get our best buildings built. But we do have that long history that I think haunts many people. And I think some people feel like in order to assert their greatness, and they might be super creative and talented, but I think many people feel like that almost requires them to act in this aggressive way. I don't know, does that resonate with what you guys have seen? Yeah, I think, you know, the the one thing I, I think about when we're talking about this topic is comedians are very screwed up. They're more screwed up than architects. And you often hear about the stories where they're always afraid of getting therapy because they're afraid of it changing or altering their ability to have the same sense of humor or tell the jokes and make a living. So they often avoid getting, seeking therapy. And I wonder, you know, the question is always going to be asked, well, would we have the work of Frank Lloyd Wright if it wasn't for the fact that who he was? And so that, that's an interesting question. I mean, I think good architecture could be designed without being an asshole. But at the same time, I don't want people to not be firm in their presentation of their ideas. I want them to be cognizant and aware of the impacts of those, uh, those ideas. And, and I'd like to share an example because it just happened to me today. And it's remarkable the, the scenario you put out there because I am the architect for a project of, for a friend of mine and I'm not the designer of the project. So we're meeting on site, having our first construction meeting with the designer and the general contractor and the client is there. And this absolute absurd pronouncement from this designer who is getting awards and doing all sorts of great things, but he's bringing that mentality where the tyranny of his idea was going to trump any, any needs and functions of the space. So it doesn't matter to this particular individual that this idea about the space is a nonprofit meant to help a community. It doesn't matter. And function be damned, cost be damned. And I just said, I fucking had it. And I just lit <laughs> off. And I just went off. I mean, I went the other way. I'm like defending my client. I have a singular focus on the mission and the value and the, the timeline. And I have to deal with this designer who has nothing but the tyranny of his idea in his head. And it needs to trump everything else. So <laughs> I was on a design review last week. And one of the things that you recognize, and I've been on design reviews before, but one of the things I, I kind of was recognizing in myself and I was changing as I was going along and I was seeing the change is how you present your ideas or your criticism to people based on their level of experience and willingness to be receptive to that idea. And this is the one thing I don't think any of the critics that I've ever had in school, and I haven't had really bad critics and I've been fortunate in that, but they just come in there and they just beat these kids about the head. And, and you know, some measure of that is, is well, you can tell when you look at a student's work, if you've ever just sat on a design review, 
who is mailing it in and who's actually really struggling with a really good idea. And the ones that tend to mail it in are the ones who tend to get the the more harsher criticism because you have these 20 students and they're all engaged and they're all struggling with language or all struggling with ideas. And then you got a couple that just like, they don't care. They just like throw stuff out on the wall and don't care. And those are the ones that I have a harder time with and hard time being a better person. I mean, the flip side to that, because I, I'm really interested in, in thinking about this as how students are upcoming young people in our field. How are they going to approach the kind of culture that we created back when we were students? I reviewed students recently, and there was one person who her ideas were amazing, but she wasn't, uh, this sort of overall idea was amazing, but she was she was terrified to commit to anything concrete. So the, the drawings and whatnot felt like she could speak about them as having all kinds of possibility, but she couldn't commit to actually putting something on paper that would draw that line, literally, of saying, I made the decision that this should go here. And I think it's because she had, you know, she was afraid of her own ideas not being perfect from the get-go. There's that whole aspect, right? That the first line, the first idea that comes out needs to be perfect, rather than the idea that we work through a bunch of really bad ideas to get to a good one, and that that's okay, that that's a good side of practice and how we how we design and then the you know the fear of putting it on the wall for other people to judge which is it's a really hard thing for students especially and especially if they're in a culture where they think that the audience is more likely to enjoy beating them up than to actually helping them so i you know i have a lot of criticisms of our contemporary school structure how curriculum is structured and how the jury system is structured. And I feel like I, I saw this student a, a week ago that exemplified to me a lot of what that fear is based in. Can I throw out a few questions here to the group? I, I don't think any of us necessarily have the answers to this. But first of all, do you guys think that mental health or mental illness is more common among architects than the general population? There was a study on Architect a couple of years ago, and it was not a great study, and I critiqued it pretty harshly, but it basically showed that amongst male architects, the suicide rate was pretty high by comparison to other professions. So that might be a clue. Okay. So, so going, (laughs) going, just going by the answer of yes, assuming the answer is yes, not saying that there's any kind of factual evidence. I would assume that the rate of mental illness is probably pretty consistent across a lot of the creative professional fields. Do you think that it is due to the type of people that are attracted to this, this type of work? are, you know, creative, emotional people that perhaps deviate from the middle of the kind of emotional psychological spectrum that tend to exhibit signs of mental illness more so? Or do you think that the that the industry or the work contributes to that? Esther, maybe you might have some insight into this. So I don't have a lot of insight on specifically, you know, mental illness in architects or in architecture. You know, the mental illness, you know, can be a little bit problematic because I think we're talking about many different things. I think there's, you know, the question of stress levels, which I think, you know, our profession is structured in a way that can be very stressful for especially younger people, both in the school where everyone knows that architecture students are the ones working the longest hours. And then also, you know, starting out at firms where, you know, many of the bigger firms you work very long, grueling hours, and you're not being paid a lot of money, and you might be, you know, harshly criticized for any little mistake. So I think there's definitely that question of, like, is this a stressful profession or exhausting profession? I think that's a little bit different than saying that there's a higher percentage of people coming in who are, have a tendency to mental illness. So I'm 
putting that out there. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm glad that you clarified that distinction because they're, they're definitely, I mean, mental illness, from my understanding, is a, is a, a chemical and, you know, clinical diagnosis that is separate from just being under a lot of stress. Yeah. I did read recently, just kind of on this topic of stress or discontent, I did read a study, I think it was out of someone from Australia who talked about satisfaction in architects in their work and found a pretty high level of unhappiness. And in that study, one of their suggestions was that it was more of a mismatch between kind of what people expected they would be doing, getting out of school, and which was, you know, I don't know, designing airports and skyscrapers on their own, and the more practical and realistic aspect of, of working in architecture in which, you know, you spend some time on design. And if you're at a big firm, you might be doing an airport or a skyscraper, but there's also many other aspects of the work that people were not prepared for. One of the things that I love about architecture is actually that kind of wide range of things that go into making something get built. I don't mind doing spreadsheets of, of budgets and I don't mind, well, I don't love doing um, fixtures less than uh, window schedules. But I think that kind of expectation versus reality might be something that if we could expose students a little more to what our work actually is, maybe people would be more prepared and more understanding of what's expected and feel less frustrated. Or less inclined to even wanting to be part of the profession. Right. Which might not be, you know, for some people, this might not be the best choice, the kind of image of the architect and the actual practice of being yeah. an architect might not align <laughs> and, and might not match what they were hoping. But here's the thing I want to push back a little bit on from what both of you have said so far. And this is something that I struggle with because when you characterize, well, this is like perhaps a feeling or something. I think the, the question I have is that I love being an architect. I love every aspect of the profession. There isn't anything I would change about it. And I get asked this all the time. Would you do it over again? Would you do the same thing? Absolutely. That doesn't change anything. Still doesn't change that I'm not terribly happy. It doesn't change the fact that I do suffer from some level of depression. But what I think is that when it's like a dissatisfaction with how you think, it, it's, it's, if it was just that, that seems alterable. It seems alterable in a very like snap of the finger kind of way in which that while you're just not happy with like this, at, no, you know, there's, there's a lot of stress and, there, and stress is, stress is, I don't want to diminish the level of stress. And granted, I'm, I'm a white guy. I don't suffer from the amount of stress that a black woman or a, a black professional or anyone, you know, who's not a gender binary in this profession, that stress is uniquely and often more distinct and painful than what I'm going through. But there's this weird part of me that feels like if I don't have a right to my pain. And I think that one thing that's interesting is that I've always believed this, that everyone's pain is their own and no one gets to tell somebody else what level of discomfort we should put up with just because it doesn't fit into the nice, neat box of a particular mental illness. And the stresses that I experience with, you know, I've got two full-time jobs, essentially. I'm juggling about a half a dozen different clients. I'm enjoying every single aspect of it. But it, you know what? It's tough. It's a tough business. And, you know, if I stop doing that, then I start questioning, what is it that I'm actually doing? I think you bring up feelings that most architects have either felt at one point or many points or on an ongoing basis. 
I'm curious about ways that people can improve those those situations. I mean, Esther, into your work in uh, psychoanalysis, I mean, how can psychoanalysis play a positive role in combating these these feelings of disappointment or depression or despair? Um, no, I love what you guys have been saying. And I think actually one of the things that I really value about the psychoanalytic approach as opposed to some other modes of therapy is that it actually is kind of a really honest attempt to grapple with the things that are unpleasant and unchangeable about life. And there are some things about living any kind of life that are painful. I mean, death is painful and families can be painful and our shortcomings are painful. And I totally love the idea that we should all accept and and acknowledge our own pain and that we should be cognizant that you know, some people have a harder life than ours. And I think, you know, in many ways, we're, we're all very privileged. And so being grateful is also an authentic emotion. But what I do think about the difference between kind of thinking about pain as a mental illness and thinking about pain as part of life is that I think these bad feelings become destructive and aggressive when we try to hide away from them, when we can't allow ourselves to experience the fact that, you know, clients can be stressful or annoying and that we're worrying about other people's needs a lot of the time. What I think the psychoanalytic approach brings is the idea that actually acknowledging and accepting the full range of feelings that we have is part of being a healthy human being and is what allows us to live life in a kind of in the full spectrum, which includes, you know, both the joyful moments and the painful moments. And that we become, you know, we attack others when we're in a way when we're kind of disavowing our own difficulties. So that's a way of some people to make themselves feel, you know, oh, I'm strong and powerful and successful by belittling others. And that, you know, if you can acknowledge that we're all vulnerable and insecure and sometimes happy and sometimes not so happy and accept those feelings. And, you know, in my mind, that allows us to be more generous and to enjoy all those different feelings. I mean, I think it's legitimate. You know, my, um, my fiance has been practicing this for probably about 20 years now where it's a kind of a talk therapy, but she has a peer counseling group that she works with. So she doesn't see a psychotherapist, but she has this group of people that she meets with and they get to talk the other people that are in the room just listen. They just sit there. They don't offer any comments in between. And it just kind of go back and forth and you share. And I was resistant to it because it's just not me. I've never done that before. It sounds so foreign to me and alien. It's just not something that it, it never felt. I've, I've, I've had therapists, not psychotherapists, but psychologists. And I've worked out some things. And But we've tried it. And we would sit down and we're, and I think we're starting. I'm starting to feel more comfort in it. And it's just listening to each other for five minutes. And just listening, because I think in that moment where we're exposing ourselves to the feelings that we have, there's this tendency that kind of rush in and, and offer some uh, solace or some comfort. And it's a practice thing to actually just listen. Listening is a is not very easy. I don't do it very well, <laughs> but I'm getting better at it. Where just listening to, just having, you know, that's where I think it, we're not equipped well enough with it in school is that we're 
have all these different feelings. We have all these different things that we're experiencing. We have the technical side. We have the pressures of trying to find jobs. We have the tension of grades. We have all that stuff happening, but no one is giving us or offering us that mechanism to help us cope with the stresses of all of these things. And the easiest thing would be to do is that we're all having this shared experience of being design professionals in a very challenging field. And it would be so easy if they just took five minutes or, uh, you know, 20 minutes out of your class and just sit there and just listen to one another, express those feelings. And I think that might be a good place to start, even if it's not the psychoanalytic route, but it's still a good place to even just have an airing of those things. Yeah, that is a really good point that you bring up. And Esther, back to your point, it's so true that, you know, there, while there's a lot of mental health issues prevalent in the architecture industry, if you're not personally suffering from those, you're working around a lot of people that are. So, you know, the point that you brought up of practicing empathy and understanding that vicious behavior you're experiencing may be coming from a place of hurt or other types of personal issues that aren't necessarily personal to to yourself can help a lot. Because I think that behaviors that exhibit through mental health issues can be contagious. You know, if you if you work around people that are showcasing behavior in a negative way, you know, that that can really you can really take that on yourself. Ken, I love this notion that you brought up of, of listening and not trying to solve the problem because I think it's a really common thing. And especially among architects, I would say it's also had tended to be more of a way that men approach problems is to, I'm going to go in there and fix it where women have tended to be better at saying, you know, I'm just going to show some empathy, but we all as architects, that's what we're trained to do, right? Is to hear the problem and then solve it. Um, and I think Esther, this goes back to the, the very beginning when we were talking about listening to like individual clients, we are hired to listen to exactly what those specific problems that that this synagogue or this community center or this homeowner are facing. And we're expected to solve them. But then maybe in emotional worlds, that turns over into, you know, me listening to my spouse at the end of the day who just wants to vent for a while. And when I try to fix it and come up with a solution and tell you, well, here's what you need to do, that's really not a welcome intervention at that point, right? <laughs> at that point, I'm supposed to just be the supportive listening ear, not be the architect. <laughs> I'm also thinking I really like this idea of listening, and I'm trying to think about how that also translates into both what you were suggesting, kind of a peer listening, you know, architecture students listening to each other and sharing the, the experience of, you know, struggling with the project. But also in terms of teaching architecture, what does it mean to really listen to your students? Because obviously, whoever's the studio teacher, they have a lot more experience and they have their own way of solving this particular architecture problem. But the real task of a teacher is to kind of be able to listen to what it is that each particular student wants to do and help them develop their own thinking. And, you know, the things that are, that are roadblocks, the things that make people stuck or insecure about moving forward or confused by having too many ideas, they're not exactly architecture problems. They're, they're problems, they're internal conflicts around, you know, who I am and how do I want to present myself in this group of people and how do I imagine myself growing to be a, a kind of a grown-up. And so trying to listen to what it is that is creating the struggle for the student with their project, I think would be as valuable or more, or maybe even more valuable than, you know, trying to give them particular 
advice on how to move the project forward. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, this profession is a is a long one. Yeah. And <laughs> and it's constantly educating me. And there isn't a day that goes by that I don't learn something new that I didn't know the day before. And I think a lot of times in school there's this kind of world making that if it doesn't go that way, that you're less than that that somehow this is the defining moment. And those things are so not defining. I mean, you have a whole career ahead of you to define who it is that you're going to be. And so much of what I've learned about this profession has come from shitty architects. Every office I've ever worked in has given me the, the gift of experience of how to treat people and how not to treat people. And I could go on. It's a rather short list of the people that have affected me in a way that has taught me that I want to treat people differently than that because that's not the way I want to be treated and I won't tolerate it. And I've worked at very nurturing offices where, you know, it was tough. The people were hard, but they they cared about the outcome. They cared about your personal well-being and they cared about the well-being of, of the project. So there's this really delicate balance that we need to share with one another about what it means to be a professional in this world. And I don't think it's quite there. I think you just have to teach it by example. There's not a class that you can take. There isn't one. Is there though? I mean, aren't there like, and you guys might laugh at me for this, but aren't there like, um, you know, uh, sensitivity training type workshop things you have to do in, in places of employment? I mean, aren't there techniques you can teach that to students, team building exercises, those kinds of things? And to couch it in terms of this is going to help you be a better architect, not just this is something we have to do because the school office of diversity says we have to, but this is something that will help you be a better more empathetic listener, someone who understands how other people experience space in the world, and that will help you be a better architect. I mean, I'm, I sound, I feel like I'm sounding so mercenary about this, but isn't there a way to just present it to students and to professionals and say, this will make you a better practitioner and a better designer? I agree. It's just not, a, it's not accredited. It's just recognizing our own individual humanity. <laughs> And there's so much of that missing when you're trying to win a young architect's award for some particular thing and or you're being published way too early and, <laughs> and you just exploit that, you know, you yeah. use that yeah. that that prestige to run a game at women in at school that you have no business doing. And it's just it's not it's not a thing that's singularly, you know, it's not something that, oh, this architect's profession is has this is the only place that has that problem. We all have there's a problem in society around that. And I think it's important. But I think who was it that wrote this? I think it was S Surface wrote this. We can architect many things. We should be able to architect our way out of this fucking problem. <laughs> I think we also have to bring up the fact that, you know, some of these mental health issues are beyond just our environmental control. You know, there are issues that I think get undiagnosed that can definitely be triggered or or made worse in a high pressure environment like the architecture studio in school or architectural practice. So I think the practice of being empathetic and listening and being gracious, you know, with how you treat other people is something that everybody should practice to just improve the overall health of our community. But there is a point where, you know, if that is not enough, it's not a bad thing or a shameful thing to seek professional help. 
You know, and I think that a lot of, I think that's starting to become more socially accepted these days. I know that the actor and online figure, Will Wheaton, just the other day posted a long article on his blog talking about how he has been suffering from chronic depression and anxiety since he was a young child actor. And he's just finally getting to the point where he can publicly share information about his mental illness. And he specifically, you know, calls it an illness because it's not something he's ashamed of. It's something that he's sick from. And he has sought professional help. He's taken medication and his life has completely turned around for the better. You know, he's middle-aged now, you know, it could have been resolved much earlier in his life, which could have led to much fewer problems and, and hurdles throughout his life. But, you know, it's something that I think that people in our community should should feel okay with pursuing if they feel like, you know, everything they're trying is not working. Absolutely. And I think there are things that are beyond our ability to kind of self-fix. And I think it's a great thing that we live in the 21st century and we're able to seek out help both of, you know, the various kinds of talk therapy, of more cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very good at dealing with the kind of practical getting through the day when you're anxious or with substance abuse and medication for people who who need that. And I would hate it to come out of our conversation that we should ask all the, you know, good listeners to one another. I think it's definitely not shameful and it's really wonderfully helpful. And I can say about myself that when I arrived in New York to get a master's at Columbia, you know, it was a big transition for me. I came from a very different environment and, you know, not knowing people, not speaking English as well as I do now. You know, I found myself, you know, there was a counseling office at Columbia and I decided to go take advantage of the free psychotherapy. And it became kind of a lifelong pursuit of an opportunity to think about myself, how I interact with others, what kind of things upset me more than I think they should where I can be kinder to myself, where I should not be so judgmental of myself, where it's okay to feel sad and stressed and when it's okay to feel good about oneself. And I think that's a, to me, has been a kind of wonderful pursuit that takes time and money. And I'm not naive to think that everyone can afford both to take time out of their work and to spend the money that some of these things cost. But there are many low-fee opportunities in almost any big city. And I think it can be a great way to both feel better about oneself and to be a better you know, person. And I think it actually ultimately is probably a good way to become a better practitioner, a better architect. Absolutely. And speaking of money, I think one thing that I'm, I'm hoping most students realize, but I'm sure many don't, is that most schools offer psychologists or therapists to their students. I know that when I was at SciArc, there was a therapist that worked exclusively with the students, and each student had a, a free number of sessions that they were allowed to take advantage of. And, you know, this is part of your, your tuition. I encourage everybody to take advantage of that because something like like talk therapy is a positive experience, I think, for anybody, regardless if you feel like you are in tip-top mental shape or not. You know, I think it's something that uh, just talking about about issues that you might not feel comfortable talking about with, with other people around you can only be a positive thing. 
totally agree. Totally agree. And I had the same similar experience when I was at the University of Michigan. They were very clear with us as students that we had a certain number of free visits to the student counseling office. And I took advantage of them. Absolutely. And they helped me through some really rough times as a, you know, student self-judging my own worth as compared to the value of the, you know, the work that the students next to me were doing. And sometimes it's just these really easy tools that they give you to just remind yourself that you're thinking in a way that doesn't maybe, you know, that you're judging yourself more harshly than you would maybe judge others is what it came out as to me that, you know, I'm, I'm designing something and I'm not happy with it. And I feel like I'm going to be shunned by all my fellow students if I do a bad project. And this therapist just says to me, well, Donna, would you shun every other student if they did a bad project one semester? And I was like, well, no, of course not. That wouldn't be fair. And I realized that, you know, I'm playing, I'm putting judgment on myself that I would never put on someone else because of my own self-doubt. I really worry about it on the one level with students and how much stress grad school especially is, and especially with knowing that you're going to graduate with all this financial debt, which is just this hanging, you know, looming dark cloud over your entire experience there. If your school offers these kinds of free counseling sessions, I absolutely think people should take advantage of them. Donna, I'm glad that you mentioned the word tools because it's it's so true. You know, as as I mentioned, it's valuable to learn these tools even if you feel fine because you may need to use these tools later in your career. And the more you are aware of ways to to address mental health issues as needed, the better prepared you are. And the earlier you you educate yourself and become familiar with these, the easier it will be in the long run. Can I just toss out there a little story? Because this has actually been impacting me for about the last week. I'm a big fan of John Green, the author John Green. And he, along similar to Will Wheaton recently, had, with his most recent book called Turtles All the Way Down, has talked about the character in it suffers from like an obsessive compulsive disorder and thought spirals. He calls them thought spirals. And the title of the book refers back to a story about a you know the origins of the universe and a, an old lady in the audience saying oh no the whole thing of the planets that's not right it's the earth is resting on the back of a turtle and the person presenting the story about how the planets work said well what's that turtle on top of what is that turtle resting on and the old lady says well it's just turtles all the way down and i didn't really understand that until i heard john green in a podcast just last week say that he always felt like with his writing with his work with everything he was doing in his life, he was always trying to get to the bottom turtle, that there's got to be some ultimate truth. And he's finally realizing, no, there is no bottom turtle. (laughs) You just keep going. You just keep pushing and trying with whatever skills you have and wherever you are and stop looking for that bottom turtle because it's always going to keep going anyway. He, of course, explained this much more eloquently than I did, but I keep thinking about that now that, you know, especially in terms of something like design, you can always design a better building forever but you'll always be designing forever. You'll never come to any kind of uh, of momentary satisfaction or stasis with what you're trying to accomplish. So yeah, there's always another turtle. And I think to jump into the, to the turtle metaphor and going back also to encouraging people to take advantage of counseling if, if it's available, is that when you're a student, I think you get these big projects that are you know, that it's not humanly possible for one junior person to figure out and design and do renderings and sections and elevations and diagrams and write a text about this big complex project. Like no firm would expect anyone, one person to be able to do this, but that's kind of how school works. Right. And so you're, <laughs> you're locked up by your computer, you know, and working, you know, 22 hours a day and barely eating. And one of the things that I think 
for me, going to therapy was one of the reasons why going to therapy was great, but can be also done in other ways, was just stepping away from that work every once in a while and doing something else and thinking about your work in the back of your mind, but not in that obsessive compulsive way that we work on projects. And so it might just be, you know, and this is not instead of counseling, obviously, but you might just want to go for a run or you want to go cook a a nice meal. But that time that you take away from trying to produce that amazing project is actually, I think, going to impact positively on your work. It's going to make you be able to notice the things that you completely forgot about or see your work in a in a more clear way or just feel, you know, more energized and happy to go back to your complicated rendering. So I think that's another a part of it is just a kind of self of, of self-care, of remembering that, you know, while this is an intense experience of, of studying and you need to take advantage of it and, you know, you're spending a lot of money to do this, this is also just part of life and life is not going to get suddenly so much simpler and you're not going to have <laughs> that much more time and you have to learn and, and practice carving out time when you're busy to do the things that keep you happy and and sane. Right. When I was in private practice with my best friend, still my best friend, we just don't practice together anymore. He would constantly every week say, if I can just get through this week, next week will be easy. If I can just get through this week, next week will be easy. And it it never is. And you're so as you say, you have to realize there's a certain level of passion that you want to be busy anyway. So you have to practice that self-care and step yourself out of it for a time. And I will say that he always, he worked out for 90 minutes a day. He was absolutely religiously a gym rat. So he had that time to, you know, (laughs) to take care of himself a bit. But um, there's always more work to be done. And if you think that you're ever going to plateau at some point, it's most likely not going to happen. Like you just have to keep going. And life is happening now. It's not that I'll do this project for a very low fee because the next project I'm going to be paid for. Like, you know, this is life right now and it has to make sense. I I had that same realization, I think, when my, I have two daughters, they're 13 and 10. And when they were little, I kept thinking, well, you know, soon I'm going to, you know, I'm leaving work early. You know, initially it was quite early, like three or four o'clock. Now it's maybe like 5.30. I'm leaving the office early and soon they're going to grow up and I'll go back to regular architecting hours. (laughs) And at some point, like I think in maybe third grade, they started having a little bit more homework. And I was like, oh, this is not going to end soon. Like, you know, (laughs) I'm going to still be doing homework for the next 10 years or 12 years or 18 years. So I think, you know, we all have to find a way to, we were talking about by email before how much we hate Ivanka Trump saying architecting your life. Yes. I'm going to say architecting (laughs) our life. We should all architect a life for ourselves that is a good one that we like, that we enjoy, that has the right balance of ambition and self-care and dedication to our creativity and also allows other people to be part of our lives and maybe other types of things. I mean, we don't all have to always be doing architecture at all times. Can I ask, Esther, how old are you? Um, I'm 46. Okay, because I'm 51. And I, there's a whole other podcast we could do about architects at an older age and entering menopause. Per, in my life, when I began entering menopause, Prozac was my lifesaver, frankly, and I'm happy to admit that. <laughs> Prozac is, and I am still on it, it's helping me to just manage things so much better than I was up to building up to that time. But, I, you know, I, I, I worry a lot about students in our profession, but I think there's a whole other realm of architects as we get older and the expectations we place on ourselves, and especially female architects that are in the menopause years, I would just point out if anyone wants to reach out to me on Twitter, I'm more than happy to talk about 
menopause, <laughs> but we don't have to fill the whole uh, podcast with it. No, I'd love to do another another podcast on, on some of those topics. I've recently been trying to hire another person for my office. And since the other two people are guys, I was like, okay, I have to hire a woman. And it is really hard to find experienced women who are, I think, who are still kind of excited about the profession and who are looking for some kind of opportunity. And it's not, I'm, I've been super flexible about you can work as many hours as you want. You can, I mean, we have to agree on how much I pay for those hours, but I'm really open to all kinds of different configurations. But I think, you know, that reality of a lot of women dropping out of the profession is kind of hit me hard in this last round of trying to hire people. Esther, I was wondering if you could share any suggestions for reading on the topic of mental health that you think would be especially valuable to our architecture listeners? And this is obviously in addition to all of the pieces that you've written that we will be sharing in the show notes with links to those, because I recommend for those of you listening to this uh, to go and and, and read those pieces that Esther wrote. But yeah, are there any books or any articles that you recommend? Um, I'll mention maybe just one right now, a book that just came out and I was kind of fortunate to find out about it because I was asked to, to read it and write a little blurb is called Listening to Design by Andrew Levitt. And he was an architect who was frustrated being an architect and went on to becoming a psychologist and then missed the architecture part and went back to teaching architecture in England. And he writes about his process of listening to students in studio crits with both his architecture degree and his psychology degree, and really trying to think about how to help each individual student in their process of discovering what kind of architecture they want to make and being really attuned to where they're coming from, their kind of life stories before their current situation. And, you know, they might be juggling many other complicated things while they're going to school. And he kind of juxtaposes his analysis of of what it means to do design and what the creative process is with little vignette stories about students and how his way of of doing a studio crit works. And I, I found the book quite beautifully written and very insightful and I think would be helpful both to people teaching architecture and people who are experiencing it and trying to as, as students and trying to figure out why this is such a an emotionally complicated process. Oh, that sounds like a great, great recommendation. Yeah, it does. Donna, what about you? Have you ever read anything that has been life changing in terms of, you know, how you perceive the world and how your own mental uh, health? Many things, but the aforementioned Turtles All the Way Down by John Green is just an excellent book. It's a young adult book. It's wonderful. There was a book called She's Come Undone. And I can't remember now the name of the author, but uh, I'll find it for the show notes. And there's a, a, a it was just a, a terrible moment in it when the, the teenage daughter is thinking of wanting to say to her mother, I love you and I need you and I'm scared. But all she can say is some, you know, really shitty thing like, well, you could at least let me borrow the car keys. And <laughs> dealing with a teenager right now, that, that, uh, idea of how we say the worst things to the people we love the most keeps coming back to me. (laughs) Yeah, that was a good one. In terms of architecture, and this is really not a good recommendation for mental health because the architect in it is not mentally healthy, but the book Where'd You Go Bernadette had a huge impact on me in part because the female protagonist architect in it I recognize so much of myself in her. And again, it's very unhealthy activities and, and engagements, but it's a great book and funny 
It's a comic novel. So I guess I like comic novels because everything I've mentioned is comic. It's also being made into a movie shortly. So yeah, people will have to go see it. You know, a lot of the books I read in grad school were, they're things I really go back to. And on a very positive note, the, and I've mentioned this book many times on the podcast, but Foreign Architecture of Reality by Michael Benedict is something that every time I really think about how do I want to build in the world, that's the book I come back to. It talks about calmness and silence and materiality of spaces in ways that to me, when I'm, you know, my mind is spiraling on all kinds of different approaches or thoughts or trends or ideas, I can always come back to something that feels very foundational in that book. And that's important for me. What about you, Paul? Can I ask that question of you? Well, I have one recommendation that I found really impacted the way I perceived my environment in a very healthy way. It's not at all specifically for architects, but I think it really is quite helpful to architects. It's it's uh, Wherever You Go, There You Are by John Kabat-Zinn, who is a kind of an expert in uh, mindfulness. And I read this quite a few years ago, so um, a lot of the specific details I can't recall off the top of my head, but it really, it was a, it was a great book to really understand the practice of, of mindfulness and to, uh, it helped me appreciate the now and and where I am in in the present because I think that I have a tendency as do many creative busy people to constantly be thinking about everything around me everything in the future everything in the past you know more than I could possibly handle on my own and that tends to lead to thoughts of uh, anxiety and depression in in everyday life so to be able to kind of scale that back and really learn to appreciate what you have right now and what's in front of you has been a tremendous uh, learning experience for myself and and that book was just was just so so good and i know john kabat-zinn has also published a number of other great books full catastrophe living uh, mindfulness for beginners so i actually haven't read his other books i've uh, listened to some of his audiobooks but wherever you go there you are great book easy read and it really is a good way to to kind of bring you back down to earth if you feel like you're flying out of control is there any final thoughts you want to leave us with? I think we're about to wrap up here. Final thoughts. That's always a hard one. I mean, I think the most important thing that we can do for ourselves, and I think that kind of really traced through many of the things we were talking about, is a kind of awareness of what we need and and our emotional and well-being needs being met. So I think that traces through, you know, both not not accepting abusive behavior by people at at firms or schools and seeking help when we feel we need it and taking a walk and and looking at green leaves once in a while to just kind of clear our mind and let us see again what it is that, you know, and I think clearing our mind is where we, we kind of can get back to why we really love architecture and why we find it an exciting way to try to inform and shape the world and hopefully make it a little bit better. One thing I'd like to add to for those of you out there listening that are really struggling, you know, definitely try to seek help. If you're a student, go to your school. They can offer some resources. And if it's if it's really, really serious and you're suicidal, there's a hotline, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, which is 1-800-273-8255. Definitely call that. There's a lot of uh, experienced people that are willing to talk with you about your situation. It's not something to take lightly at all. And, and I, I hope that everybody out there that, that is struggling like that can take the initiative to, to seek that 
Esther, thank you so much for joining us today. This is a really huge topic, and I think we really just uh, touched on, you know, it was the tip of the iceberg. But uh, it was really great to have you and for you to share your your insight with us on on this issue. And uh, hopefully, we can have you again on sometime to talk about other issues in in this in this area. I'd love that. No, this was really fun. Thanks to Esther for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thanks again, and talk to you next time.